I'm a huge fan of managing chaos. Be prepared, no surprises, let's plan. And I think that holds for any huge systemic problem that we have to grapple with. Brenna Pavey and I met at actually the same company that John Compton and I met. I remember John, it was the episode where he talked about his father passing. In case we, I met uh, Brenna in Los Angeles when we worked for a telco, and she came in to write. The company we worked for had a $4 million contract for, for ads on AOL, and we were trying to sell faxes in your emails. And so Brenna was writing copy. She was writing the text for all our marketing and all the website, and I was a webmaster. So together, we worked quite a bit on the English language and talking about the English language and being in our 20s and going out to lunch every day, sometimes going out for drinks or film after work, you know, living that 20 lifestyle in Los Angeles. So I decided to give her a call and say hi. And I assure you, she's an interesting person. We had some technical difficulties, and so I wanted to test some audio with her. I wanted to confirm that when I spoke over her, which sometimes I do, and I normally edit it out, that her audio would still be strong and I could edit out my interruption. A lot of my editing is pulling myself out of interrupting my guests. So I spoke over her when she spoke. So I wasn't listening to her until later when I edited it. And I thought, I'll pull myself out and let you hear what she says. The biggest question is if we're talking together at the same time, if you're, if you get ducked out or not. So why don't you tell me a little poem and I'm going to speak over you for a second and start saying something. There once was a podcaster named Lyle. He had this great idea for a while. Oh, and then I stopped her. I, I want to know what the rest of it is. Is it, it sounds like it's going to get bad. Oh, I hope it doesn't get bad. Hi, Brenna. It's been a while. Hi, Lyle. Where in the world are you? I'm in Perth, Western Australia. How did you get down to Australia? Well, 19 years ago, possibly today, 19 years ago, I flew on a plane, which is very hard to do right now because of our good friend COVID, um, to start a what they call here a postgraduate degree. You and I would call it a graduate degree. Uh, I sort of on a lark signed up to do an MBA at the sort of big flagship university here because I really had nothing better to do. <laughs> and I wasn't particularly enamored of living in Los Angeles anymore. So I gave it a spin and I never came back. And you fell in love, had a baby. I did. I fell in love with a local, should have done that years ago. And we had a kid who's now 14. So we're divorced. So I got married, had a kid and got divorced. <laughs> at the farthest flung edges of the planet in Perth, Western Australia, which is quite a nice place to live. Why is it nice? Well, it's like LA, but without all the people. <laughs> that's good. No, that's really good. It's a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> so Los Angeles has, depending on how you, how big you draw your circle with your compass, you know, between 10 and 15 million people. Perth has about 2 million, I think, but the more interesting statistic is that the state of Western Australia, which is about as large as the Western United States from like Montana down to New Mexico West. Wow. That's big. Has fewer than 3 million people. Wow. That's small. Let me repeat that. <laughs> <laughs> 
So the state of California is about 40 million people. Yeah. So you add in a few more states, and I think you're bucking up against, I don't know, 60 or 70 million in the Western U.S. We've got under three, and that's roughly the same landmass. What's the countryside? Is it as, as, as hospitable as California and Oregon and all these states? No, everything's trying to kill you all the time. <laughs> that's Australia. So we cover several climatic zones. So I live in an in a area that's quite like Southern California. So, you know, Mediterranean climate, desert meets the ocean. We don't have mountains like we do in, in the Western United States here. Um, there's a lot of very inhospitable desert. And then as you go north, that becomes a lot of very inhospitable kind of subtropic and tropics. But why is it not pleasant for human beings if it's tropics? Well, in fact, last week, the town of Onslow in Western Australia, which is on the coast, broke a heat record of something like 50.4 degrees Celsius. On the coast, next to an ocean. On the coast. So Onslow is on the, on the Indian Ocean, and it hit a 30-year, I don't know, ever since records have been kept high, of over 50 degrees Celsius, which is extreme. It's like 122 degrees Fahrenheit, something like that. Yeah. yeah. I don't understand how it can get so hot next to the ocean. The ocean can't be that warm. I mean, you'd think normally that it balances things out a bit. That's the whole day- idea of coastal cities. I know. It's, wow. It, it's nuts. And so th- there were even some towns inland that I think didn't get that hot. But the inland towns generally can be hotter. Right. And, and Onslow is not even that far north. Um, Western Australia and a lot of Australia is sort of like places like Alaska. It's really wild and rough here. Like you can't, you can't drive on a, a road trip without being prepared. And really, on a lot of road trips, you can't even go without a four-wheel drive and, you know, like jerry cans of fuel and stuff. Like, it's, it's really remote out there. So Perth is a really remote capital city, but the rest of the state and a lot of the rest of Australia is, is also extremely remote and wild and inhospitable to human life. <laughs> Are you glad you're there? Yeah. So when I first got here, I really missed food. In fact, I missed food more than people, which is saying something probably because I'm from Los Angeles. Um, you know, per- Perth is a younger city and Australia is a much younger country than the United States from the standpoint, at least of say immigration, you know, so you can't just wander down to your local Oaxacan taco joint or your Jaliscan taco joint. Tacos here are from a box and that's, that's changing. That's changed a lot in 19 years, but you don't have that, that melting pot that is America um, even though Australia is a country country of immigrants, um, you know the United States is a couple hundred years on Australia, and a lot more people um, and a lot more what I would call you know sort of depth and and um, history. But the flip side is that it is super new and it's wild west and it's you know it, it's it's interesting from that point. Yeah, I'm glad I moved here, but mostly because it's less crazy, you know. And and that was even before before the situation that the United States finds itself in now, which I think is more acutely crazy than it's been in a long time. You know, when I moved here, I just thought, oh, I don't need a therapist because I don't feel stressed all the time. <laughs> Whereas in L.A., everyone's got a therapist and they might have a therapist when their therapist is out of, out of town. Um, so I just felt like my stress levels from living in a big in the big smoke dropped considerably when I moved to this part of the world. People work hard here, but they also leave the office. 
um, you know, sometimes you look around at four o'clock and it's crickets. You're like, oh my God, where'd everybody go? Well, it's like they're at the pub or they're at, they're at the gym or they're at the beach. You don't have that um, obsession with either FaceTime or productivity that you do in the US. And I think part of that is because, you know, this is a socialist country. There is a network that we pay taxes for that supports you. Um, and somehow Australians seem to do very well, both at home and overseas. You know, they, they have this phrase, Australians punch above their weight. They're, it's not like they're all slacking off, going to the beach and getting nothing done. Um, there's a lot that gets done here, but it's not at the cost generally of your mental and physical health, COVID notwithstanding. And you were able to take that on just by moving there, not, not just be on Australian, but just moving there? Yeah, that's a good question. No, I, <laughs> so when I moved here, I came as a student, which gave me access to some of the, you know, sort of social network because I was on a visa. But then uh, shortly after I moved here, I met an interesting local guy who I ended up sticking around with for quite some time. But at the, so at the, when I finished my degree, we looked at each other and we thought, okay, so now what are, what are we going to do? Like, it would be silly for me to go back to America and apply for what would then at that stage have been permanent residency. So that would have been an option, but we decided to try to make it as a couple and follow the, the immigration rules and have me apply for permanent residency. Um, so we did that, which involved all sorts of hilarious activities like collecting invitations from friends to their weddings and photos from us on holiday and joint phone bills and things of that nature to, to show that we were a legit couple and not playing. But you were a couple. We were a couple, but as it turned out, we didn't have a lot of evidence. And the evidence that we had was not very impressive to the Australian Immigration Department. So I failed. Oh. I didn't pass muster. And I was irked because the woman who failed me was herself an immigrant. <laughs> she was Chilean. She had a very strong Chilean accent. And I thought, well, this is a bit ironic, isn't it? Anyway, so I failed. But the provisions of the law at the time enabled me to stay and work. So I appealed the decision and in the meantime, collected a whole bunch more wedding invitations and utility bills and proof that somehow my other half and I at the time were building a life together. Do you have a lot of semi artifice photos from the time of like, oh, we got to get more pictures. We should have a picture of this. We should have a picture of this. <laughs> no, we actually had a lot of legit photos at the time. But, okay. but the reason that particular immigration agent failed us and I objected to her the way she interpreted the rules at the time was that she didn't like our finances. We didn't have enough commingling of finances. Oh, that's ridiculous. I mean, there's lots of married couples that keep perfectly separate finances. Oh, and by the way, this is all based on the fact that we did a spousal application. We weren't married, but you can you can do a spousal application. Um, and we, we had to prove that we were a legitimate couple through spousal application. I, I also had no chance of passing the professional test, which involves your being from a vocation or a job type that is desired by the Australian government. The best profession I should have picked was hairdresser. I should have been a hairdresser because I would have gotten in without anyone questioning me. But instead, I paid full fees for an expensive business degree. I had already been to American University, you know, I had a bachelor's degree. And at the time, I was working for the Chamber of Commerce. So I was kind of promoting like Australian business. But anyway, I failed that. There was no chance. So no points, failed the spousal, and then I went on appeal. And so eventually, I don't know how many months later, 18 months later, my appeal hearing was ruled in my favor. Oh, that's nice. So I got permanent residency. And that was, that was handy 
Isn't your bachelor's from Berkeley in German? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that, that didn't yeah, work as which a professor? Is why, <laughs> and that's why my girlfriend, who was living here at the time, said, you need an MBA because you have no business sense. And I couldn't come up with a response to that. Wait, she was because right. of your bachelor's in German? That's why you have no business sense? Or, you know, just because I'm a language person, right? right? Zero business sense whatsoever. And so, yes, I dutifully went to my strategy classes and my accounting classes, which I really struggled with. You know, it's right on one side. Why does it need to be right on the other side? Uh, statistics. And I got an MBA, which then, of course, led to my first job and the next job and the next job. And then I got permanent residency, which then allowed me to become, you know, a full-fledged working member of Australian society and then ultimately voting member. So I do now have also Australian citizenship. Is it a dual citizenship thing too? So you can come back to the States if you want to or not? Yeah. So under various countries' rules, you're allowed to retain. So the Americans don't, well, they don't mind anymore. When I initially became a dual citizen, and this was before I got my Australian citizenship. So yes, I have three passports. Um, Back in the old days, the Americans didn't like that. So I remember going to the UK and coming with my British passport and then coming back through, I think it was JFK airport. And I hid it. I hid my, my British passport at JFK in you know, like the dirty underwear section of my suitcase. And for some reason, I must've had a guilty look at my face. The guy said, open up your suitcase. And he pulled out my British passport from the dirty sock section and said, you know, this is legal now. I said, no, I didn't know that. But thanks for telling me. That's why I don't have a stamp in my American passport. Anyway, so so I've got this bizarre trifecta. Wait, why of, do you have you know, a British passport? My father was English. Oh, okay. So like me, this is kind of a weird parallel. So he, he left England in the late 50s because there was no work, nothing to do. And he went to Canada and he wandered across Canada for five years. And then he ended up in San Francisco in the mid 60s when everything was happening. And through some stroke of luck that only my father would would, you know, come across, he got his green card through the Olympic Rugby Club of San Francisco. So this is a bunch of beer swilling, two short shorts wearing, you know, Englishmen and and Canadians and who knows who else, Australians and Argentinians and Kiwis and stuff, who play games, you know, as their major priority in life. And that's how my dad got his green card. Like. I, no one will ever be able to explain this to me, including him, because he's moved on to greener pastures. But yeah, so I had a slightly harder test to get into this country. But the move was similar because I think, you know, living in England in the late 50s probably was not, you know, a, a wonderful, did not bode well for a young man with, you know, maybe some education, but not any interest in his father's business or in the military or in the clergy. You know, there weren't a lot of options back then. And I think for me, you know, leaving you know, you and I were in that kind of tech boom of the early 2000s in California. And I was sort of burnt out and I was bored. And, you know, moving to a new country was was kind of exciting. And being able to do it legally was very nice. Thank you very much. And I feel quite smug and lucky now because, you know, I don't, I would not relish the prospect of raising a teenager in the middle of Los Angeles at this time. Um, so, yeah, I feel pretty lucky. The, this is the lucky country. They do call it that. Even with the current weather situations up north from you? Even with the current weather and like crazy spiders and, you know. Things that kill you. Other fish that kill you. Yeah. Sharks. So with your MBA, so when we knew each other in the in the yeah. pre-dot-com uh, bust era, uh, we both worked for the same telco for a little while. Mm. My thought of you was a lot of writing. 
and yeah. you've continued to be a writer. Is that a good? Yeah. The other astounding, the other astounding thing. Well, maybe it's the only astounding thing about my so-called career is that I essentially do the same thing I did with you 25 years ago, which is, I, I end up rewriting documents that no one wants to read, that usually must be written, and I write them better than they were already written. So I don't even write original stuff. I just repurpose content, <laughs> which is one of these awful modern things. But incredibly, I can still put food on the table by being a, a student and a lover of English um, my whole life, and maybe other languages as well. So right now I work for a pension fund and I'm the communications person in the investments division, which, you know, you could see being the most boring thing that ever happened. But as it happens, we're working on a lot of, you know, kind of sustainable investment stuff, which is super interesting. And, you know, I help make it sound better and, and make it sound understandable to various audiences. So that's kind of what I do. Does that mean you also have to understand the content quite well? Yeah, it, I think it means you, I have to be a quick study. So I've done this in a whole bunch of industries. Like the industries I've worked in is is long. It's a long list. Um, I had never worked in in the investment sector before this. I'd done a little bit in insurance, but I think it means you have to be kind of a quick. Um, you have to be a quick read and an interpreter of information for other people. So I'm not the expert in that particular company on phrasing things for. The, the mom and dad investor. That's not my role. But if the investment strategy guys or the, or the team who's putting together big, crazy deals, like, you know, we buy airports, right? Like we do cool stuff like that. If they're talking about, you know, internal rate of return, we don't, we don't do that with members, like with customers, like we will, tr I will translate that language into something that is more usable in, in a different context. You say transit? translate, you know, kind of interpret it. Like I'm a middleman, right? I don't, I don't do the deals. So I don't write that original language, yeah. those original words, but I also don't provide, I don't do the, the end social media copy. I'm sort of like the guy in the middle. So if there's an amazing deal that's done on an airport, like say we buy 15% of airport in X city, then I'll take some of those words at some point, turn them over to the marketing folks so that they can turn them into a cool social media post. Um, you know, that, that's a very simple way of describing what I do, but effectively it's not dissimilar to what we used to do at that telco, which sure. is to try to distill a, a kind of complicated business problem or, you know, product into 140 characters on, what was it? AOL. <laughs> so that's where the marketing was. Yeah. The pre, pre, pre Twitter, right? <laughs> like Twitter, I've done that. I did that in like 1997. Do you enjoy your job? Is it work? Why do it? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, sometimes, yes, because again, it is hard for me to, uh, sometimes I pinch myself. Like, I can't believe that there's a market for essentially what is a complete and utter grammar nerd. That's what I am, right? To, to do something for 40 hours a week and get paid for it. Um, on the other hand, you know, I, I do certainly have some career regrets. You know, I'm not actually saving the planet. I have a very small role to play in influencing some parties through words on how cutting emissions is the right thing to do for someone investing in their 401k. You know, that 
in fact, the irony of what I do now is that I tried for a long time to get out of the energy sector where I was doing a lot of climate change and energy policy work in this country for a long time. Australia is not known to be at the forefront of climate change policy, as you may know. And it was a bit disheartening. And so the minute I, you know, it took me about five years to get out of that industry and I did some tech work and did some different stuff. But the minute I got hired by this pension fund, I was immediately thrown into the group responsible for climate change and sustainable investing. So I suddenly ended up back back in this world of like pushing a rock up a hill, which is to convince people that they have to change their minds. You know, when you're talking about changing the emissions portfolio, uh, the emissions, um, you know, of your portfolio, you have to convince people to do things differently. And that does not happen by writing a 140 character blurb. Um, I mean, you know, effectively we're, we're re-engineering our entire economy. That's hard work. And it's really hard work in a country that's been supported for years and years by the mining sector and the oil and gas sector. You know, that's why Australia is not at the forefront of climate change policy. It's because its two biggest exports are rocks and petroleum. <laughs> and that takes a lot of energy. So, you know, changing minds is is not easy. And if that's the interesting part of what I do, then, OK, that's I'll, I'll take that. What's your pitch to someone who's got, you know, a few million dollars in savings and different kind of pension funds and such? What's your pitch to move it into a place that has impact on climate change? Yeah. So the main pitch is we need a planet to invest. To, you need a planet if you're going to be investing or living or breathing. Okay. So there are six or seven years left in what is known as the carbon budget. Not 30 years, not, not you know, until 2050. If we're going to turn the ship around, we must do it in the next six or seven years. Now, emissions are not projected to go down to meet that in that time frame. So, but there is enormous opportunity in investing in the early stages of what is effectively an industrial revolution. So we know that uh, coal is not a goer, no matter what the coal price is doing now, because say there's disruption in Ukraine and, you know, there are some implications for the, you know, the, the heating of Europe. In the long term, coal is out. So put some pressure on your pension fund to drop their coal investments or don't invest in them. Do something else. Um, I think another thing that's worth bearing in mind is that companies are now coming around to the notion that it is, the, the responsibility to the shareholder is not their sole responsibility. There are other responsibilities they need to um, honor, one of which is to the planet, another of which is to the people who live here. And there are other people beyond those of us who live in, um, you know, first world industrialized cities that we need to think about. You know, one of the things that we're working on at this pension fund is modern slavery. Modern slavery is another angle of, you know, what you couldn't call ESG, environmental social governance matters, that people are now taking quite seriously. Um, and, you know, the argument that goes, that, that probably speaks to all of these things, why do we care about people who are in, um, difficult situations? Why do we care about water supplies and air quality and all the rest of it? Because it's actually more profitable. You get more stuff done. If you can breathe well, if you can keep your workers healthy, uh, if the water supply is clean and so on and so forth. You know, if, you're, if your employees are not subjected to 
multiple days over 50 degrees centigrade, they're going to work more. They're going to be more productive. They're going to be happier. So it is not all financial doom and gloom to shift our thinking. It's just that it's, re- it's a really lumpy change. It's not smooth. I got to say the way you're saying that just irks me. The idea like it's better to be good to people because of profit seems like a very uncomfortable pitch to make. It's practical, but it's uncomfortable. Well, that's the argument you make to people who don't want to change the way things are. So you have to make that pitch because it actually makes sense financially. Surprise, it makes sense financially. So if so, if people are still stuck on this notion that shareholder interests are the primary interests of a company's way of doing things, then you say, okay, well, if you as a shareholder of company X want that company to continue to make money and pay dividends, then it probably needs to look at its supply chain to see if it has any slaves in that supply chain to see if its carpets are being made by five-year-olds who don't get a lunch break, right? Um, It's more profitable to make carpets with workers who are well-fed, who have some place to go when they fall down the stairs or the building catches on fire. And, you know, this is not rocket surgery. For, for, For those of us who who like the idea of people who are not living in poverty and of clean water and air and the rest of it, then, you know, it's sort of an obvious decision, but it's also, it also makes financial sense. Now the change is hard. It's expensive. It's difficult, but in general, the view of people who are in this business, impact investing, call it what you want, is that it's a way better idea to get in on it early and manage the chaos than to wait and then scramble. It's all about managing chaos. It's like COVID. You know, the state that I live in has interestingly had a very strict approach to COVID for the past almost two years. Because I think the guy who runs the show here is interested in managing chaos. He does not want to have um, hundreds of thousands of people turn up next week with COVID when he knows that his hospital system can't cope. So he's saying, sorry, guys, you can't come in. Now, lots of people get annoyed by this. It is very difficult to come and go from Western Australia right now. But we're watching Omicron lay waste to the Eastern Australian states. And, you know, the whole point of opening borders and allowing people to move and having, you know, COVID spread throughout the community was, was so that we could kind of accustomize ourselves to it and get businesses back online. Well, it turns out so many people are sick, the businesses are closed. And there's loads and loads of supply chain disruptions. So I'm a huge fan of managing chaos. Be prepared. No surprises. Let's plan. And I think that holds for any huge systemic problem that we have to grapple with. Why do you love the English language? It is really an absurd language. You know, we know it's a mishmash of lots of languages. In spite of that, I find it, it offers a huge amount of precision and variety in how you can communicate stuff. And I think that's probably because, you know, on the one hand, we get lots of words, we get the same concept from multiple sources. So you might get a three ways to say something in English where in a language that's sort of developed a little bit more linearly, there are not as many ways. Now, of course, many languages have lots of different ways to say other words that we don't necessarily have in our history, but 
English, I just find it fascinating. And Bill Bryson wrote a great book about English. And basically he says, there's lots of rules. Everything breaks them. Don't ask why, just accept it. It is what it is. Um, and it's interesting. English is interesting. And the other thing about English, you know, for all the faults of the British Empire, is that it's, it's spoken in many, many different ways by loads of people all around the world. And this notion of a, you know, a lingua franca is in a language that is so difficult to pronounce with every single grammar rule that's set out in the, in the book for first graders broken by, you know, the second week of first grade. Like, I love it. It's nuts. <laughs> you said that you like the variety and the precision. Yeah. Uh, the variety makes a lot of sense, but where's the precision coming from? I think the precision can come from, and, you know, I'm on the spot, so I haven't done my research. I'll, I'll need to pull out all my grammar books and, and dictionaries and things. But the precision, I think, can come, again, in in the, there are some subtle variations in words. We have, we have words for colors that come from French and German and maybe old Dutch and stuff, where you might find less variety. And this is might, I'm no authority here. Um, in other languages where they're, they're pulling from kind of one, one family of languages um, or one development track. So, I, I, you know, things like that. I think also we've got some, some interesting things you can do with verbs. You know, we've got a few tenses and a few modes that other languages don't have. Um, on the flip side, there are other languages that are way more complicated when you come to things like whom you speak to and how, politeness and social rank. The interesting thing about English is that we actually don't have a lot of that, which I find nice. You know, we don't have gendered words, which for the most part I think is great. You know, particularly now in a world where we're trying to be a little bit more inclusive of people who don't identify on a, on a binary scale. English for all of its weirdness is, is actually kind of flexible, but you will also find me ranting and raving about the rules and sticking to the rules. And I'm one of these people who wants to maintain the rules. And I don't like the people who say, oh, English develops over time. Yes, well, the comma should really still go there. Thanks. I'll just fix that for you. <laughs> Well, it's interesting. Written and, and spoken are very different in the way that yeah. we change them over time. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, a lot of the rules I like didn't exist 100 years ago. There was another rule that's since changed, but I was too young to know that because I wasn't born in 1929. So whatever, you know, like, of course, language changes. Language changes every day. How do you think about language now versus when you and I knew each other in our early 20s? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. And I think I can also even bring that back to being you know, an immigrant to an English speaking country. Because, you know, as you know, before I met you, I lived in Germany on and off for a couple of years. I, I studied German. I went to Germany, drank too much beer, then didn't know enough to say that I had a degree in it. And that's why I went back to Germany to learn the language, drank a bit less beer. Um, but I thought that moving to Australia would give me, uh, I guess I, I never thought that moving here would, would be a language thing. But immediately I realized that I was in tears half the time because everyone was hurting my feelings. And this was a language problem. You know, Australians have a different sense of humor, a lot of which kind of is British. And of course, I'm speaking about, you know, what you would call a true blue Aussie who was a white Australian, who was him or herself a relatively recent immigrant. You know, something that we're slowly learning in this country is that there were people here before the white man got here. And they were here for a really, really long time. And so indigenous Australians, First Nations Australians have 
an insane amount of languages spoken. A lot of them are dying out if they haven't already. And, and what they communicate in their languages blows my mind when I even start to scratch the surface. Anyway, also not qualified to, to, to weigh in on those languages. But the English that's spoken in this country is a little rough. <laughs> there are words that sometimes that I won't, I refuse to say, like, I sound like a moron if I say good day. Like, I just can't say good day. I don't say it. But a lot of my kid language is, is Australian or British. You know, I never said diaper. I say nappy, you know, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, coming from California, I, I really had, I was kind of soft, like coming to Oz, like I just had to toughen up. <laughs> Do you remember the experience? Like what kind of things people were saying that actually hurt your feelings that you were crying about at that time? What was it? Um, there was some swearing. There was a lot of swearing and swearing of where the use, use of words that in, in the U S we just didn't say, I have a, an appalled look on my face. And I think. I think there's a lot of what they call sledging. You know, there's a, a jovial teasing that occurs in a lot of levels of society and, you know, in the workplace and stuff that you might not experience in the States, even in good old lefty, um, lefty loony California. Can you give me an example? What's a good example? I, I mean, I think, I don't know. I just, I remember working at a, a, a good company. I had a great boss. But I, I, you know, I wrote a press release or a, a policy page or something, analyzed some policy, and I gave it to David, and he said, oh, this is crap, Brenna. This is terrible. And, you know, that's not, those are not using particularly Australian words, but the whole way was like, no, not good enough. And there's no reason to suggest that an American boss would also not have said to me, said that same thing to me at some point in my career. But the level of familiarity here is so high. For example, when my mom came over, when my kid was about to be born, I introduced her to my uh, obstetrician. I said, mom, you know, this is Simon. Simon is my mom. And she said, Dr. Simon? And I said, no, just Simon. Like, like we refer to top politicians, not by even their first names, but by their Australian nicknames. Like, everyone's got a nickname here. And half the time, you don't even know what that guy's real name is. But like, the head of the opposition and government here is named Anthony Albanese. A journalist will call him Albo to his face. That is his name. He is Albo. Wow. It's really informal here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, can you imagine if someone walked up to, you know, the president of the United States and said, yo, Joe, what's up? Right. I mean, on national television. Now, Joe. Tell us about this. No, you just can't do that. Does that mean that business feels there's less of a boundary between business kind of communication versus personal ways of speaking? Probably no. I mean, there's some really formulaic things that are done here, like, you know, a press release is formulaic and a, a, a submission to government on a policy matter typically follows a formula because that's what the guys in Canberra and the gals in Canberra, you know, the seat of government are expecting or you're, you know, you're state state politicians are expecting and you get a better result if you follow the formula so there are still those rules but there is still a really sort of casual air to um sort of daily interaction here that i still sometimes find fascinating it seems like that might lead to less stress in the sense that everything's a little bit more yeah yeah i think it does and and also i think in many cases, people just work fewer hours. And of course, you know, we've got 20 days, what is it? Four weeks. Yeah. 20 days of paid holidays, pretty much 
with any job. Like you don't have to work your way up to four weeks of paid holiday. Right. That That's kind of European in general, right? I mean, that's. And, and yeah, I mean, any sort of socialist democracy will have that, that kind of system. I mean, you pay a higher tax, you pay a privilege for that. Or the money comes out somewhere. What kind of tax rates are you talking about? Um, I would say, I think I probably pay in the order of 39%, maybe higher. You know, and there's all sorts of ways to get around. I mean, very rich people here don't pay tax, but just like anywhere else. Okay, we were talking about what you love about English. What do you love about German? Yeah, German. Yeah, that's interesting. Why do I like German? I, I don't know, because... It is that it does hold that it's that kind of harsh sound. Um, I liked, and part of what I like learning about language is actual is actually learning how to pronounce things. And I found that I was actually quite good at German. I don't know why. At some point in that second stint that I did there, people would say, "Oh, are you from Kiel?" I said, "No, I'm from LA." You know, Kiel is a city in the far, far north where I'd never been, but my accent or my pronunciation somehow sounded to people like I was from a particular region, which meant that I had achieved a level of fluency and pronunciation that was good. I mean, really good. Um, an interesting thing about German for me was that I chose to go there because of the timing. So I started university in 1988. The wall came down the next year. And I was studying German at the time. And I was looking at some programs in France because I've been doing some French and then looking at programs in Germany. I thought, wait a second, I got to go to Germany. This is crazy. So I went to Germany for my third year of university and the junior year abroad. And that was amazing because there had been less than a year of this, what's called reunification, you know, the, the reabsorption, depending on your um, the word you use, of the Eastern contingent of German states into the Western side. And a bunch of us from the program hitchhiked to Berlin from Munich wow. so that we could go to the, the big, what they called the reunification ceremony on the plaza in, in Berlin on that day. And we made it somehow. We ended up on the wrong side of the, the border while it was still a border. <laughs> we, we, we used to have this thing, you know, this was before mobile phones, before the internet and stuff. So we'd say, all right, if anyone wants to be in a certain city around this time, meet on track one of the main train station. That's always what you did. You meet on track one of the main station, main train station at 12 o'clock. So we told these guys who were driving us from Munich to Berlin and they were like nightclub junkies. Like they used to drive around Germany all the time, just like show up at awesome nightclubs. Like that was what they did. And so for, and my German was the best, but we all had, our German was terrible. And so they kept asking us, are you sure you want to go to the main train station, the Hauptbahnhof? And we're like, yeah, this is what we do. We go to Hauptbahnhof and meet on track one, right? So it turns out the Hauptbahnhof in Berlin is in East Berlin. And so these guys, I don't know how the hell they got us over the border, which was kind of still up. Like there weren't guys with guns anymore, but, you know, it was kind of shady. And anyway, they dropped us up over there and we were looking around and it's kind of bleak and like the light was really yellow. And someone said it was definitely not me. Oh, my God, I think we're in East Berlin. And it was the last night it was officially East Berlin. We slept. Congratulations. In the train station. Yeah. <laughs> It's my claim claim to, I don't know what, fame for five minutes. But we slept in the train station in East Berlin. The last night was East Berlin. Amazing. So did you go to the ceremony? One of the things, yeah, we made it over to the west side yeah. in the big plaza. And, you know, I think there were 1.5 million people there. It was wow. incredible. And, you know, it was a big deal. And so much of studying German at that time was about, you know, the Cold War and the war and the detente and the Weimar Republic, like, the literature that we read for 
that course, you know, the, the four-year degree or whatever the degree was, you know, do two years of general studies and two years of literature and language and stuff. The literature we read for that was amazing. There were times when I was in Germany, I thought, wow, I really should have gone to Brazil. <laughs> Germany was cold and gray and like super not fun. I mean, the beer was fun. The heaviness of that, of the aftermath of the war and of oh, course yeah. what led up to the war was, was you could feel it. And then what was happening in the sh very short time after the wall came down with this, you know, kind of oil and water melding of two people who had grown up in fundamentally different societies was fascinating. And, you know, I, I learned a lot about politics and kind of how to read the newspaper when I lived in Germany, because there were some concepts that we just would not have been exposed to in the U.S. at that time that were amazing to see kind of front and center. Do you recall? You know, the Westerners were not impressed with the Easterners. There were all kinds of, speaking of sledging, there were all kinds of, I would say, prejudices about things like work ethic. You know, East Germans weren't familiar with basic things like the variety of goods in stores. You know, that, that scene in Moscow on the Hudson when, when Robin Williams is walking through, a, I don't know, he's walking through a Safeway or something, something and he gets overwhelmed by coffee, coffee, coffee. There's like 10,000 types of coffee that you can buy in a Western supermarket. And that's not how it was in the East. Um and that's kind of a, a, a super basic example, but um, they were, you know, the two cultures were really different. You know, West, West Germany was a market economy. It was one of the biggest post-industrialized nations ever and made big stuff and its citizens are wealthy. And it wasn't like that in the East, but it, that's not to say that the East was a worthless place. I mean, those people went through hell and back, but they also had their own culture. And I think initially the Westerners you know, there wasn't necessarily a feel, a, a welcoming feeling. You know, there was this notion like, oh, we got to take all these people on. It's going to be a big welfare state. Um, and I don't think that was very nice. I think that's changed dramatically in 20, 25 years. But that was just something that we, you know, 19-year-olds and 20-year-olds were exposed to as these kind of interested Americans who wanted to learn another language. We, we threw ourselves into a really interesting spot at an interesting time. Were you welcomed? Yeah, I think so. But it was also one of my first introductions to people's judgment of Americans. You know, I mean, Americans are generally welcomed, I think, when they travel all over the world. But there's also this, you know, every, every country has its reputation for its bad tourists, right? And so Americans, you know, are loud, brash, don't know anything, just got their first passport, you know, whatever. The other thing that was going on at that time was the Gulf War. And that was interesting because... I didn't know a whole lot about that. And there were lots of Germans who knew a lot more about that. And of course, we also had, Europe was taking on refugees. So the United States as a kind of a, a nation builder and a, and a you know, modern colonizer, or at least warmonger was, was, that was another concept that I was introduced to at, at that age, and which was interesting. Um, so, you know, one develops a, a, a little humility when one travels. And, you know, it, it pays to be open-minded. I mean, there was a guy on my floor. I lived in one of these huge kind of Soviet-style, and of course, I was in the West, but these buildings were these big concrete dorms. Anyway, there was a guy on my floor who, it turns out, I think was from Iran. And he was a physicist or a chemist or something, graduate, graduate student. And I said, how did you come to Germany? How did you get here? And he said, I walked. And I thought, oh okay, yeah, I didn't have to do that. <laughs> and that, of course, takes you back to a place like Southern California, where you've got loads of people 
walking over the border every day who've got some very serious problems to contend with, both back at home and in their new country, which is not particularly welcoming of them. So I think as an immigrant, you you develop a sense of where home is, but also how you feel about your home and how your home feels about other people, um, which is interesting. I mean, you know, being a a white, relatively upper middle class Westerner in Australia is not challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, it's being an indigenous person in Australia is really challenging. Um, being a Vietnamese immigrant in the 70s uh, was super challenging here. Was there a lot of Vietnamese coming to Australia? Yeah, there was a there were boatloads. So there were boat people coming from the war. Right. You know, people who had nothing. They had the shirts on their backs and they made it. That sort of kind of harrowing tales of immigration from war-torn countries. You know, wow. we see that in the States. We, we see that everywhere. But um, Australia does have its share of, you know, asylum-seeking and refugee-type immigrants. I think it's probably fair to say we don't treat them very well right now. There's there's lots of controversy about how Australia deals with its refugees. Even with all the land? Even with all the land. Yes, that is a very good point. We are running out of housing here, left, right, and center. There's no housing. No one can afford to buy a house. Um, and nobody lives here. Like, <laughs> it's just absurd. <laughs> there's so much land, nobody lives on it, and somehow there's no housing. And, you know, that to buy strange. a house in Sydney now, I, I think you need something like a million dollars for a two-bedroom garage. Like, it's it's ridiculous. Wow. wow. Yeah. And Perth is not too far off that. Is that a policy thing? I mean, there's obviously resources uh, It's to a build. mix of things, yeah. I think it's a mix of, you know, it's probably a legacy from the old white Australia immigration policy. It's It's a legacy of, you know, probably particular planning and, and, you know, land release um, policies that exist in state governments and local government authorities and federal government. I mean, Australia relies, I think, to quite a considerable degree on immigrants for um, GDP growth. So COVID has been a hit in that way because we can't, we're not accepting people as immigrants right now. We've got sort of a hiatus on that. Uh, That may not be a complete hiatus, but the immigration numbers have dropped off because of COVID. Um, and I think there are concerns about that. But by the same token, there's no place for them to live if they get here. Um, there's just not enough housing. I think the Perth rental market is something like 99% occupancy. It's really, it's really hard. So you've got an increasing homelessness population, which is hard. And a lot of those are kind of middle-aged women. Like, you know, it's, there are those social pressures which are, which are increasing here. What I'm noticing, and I'm sure most people listening are noticing, is that you have a unusually broad and knowledgeable way of thinking about the world. So Hmm. I'm impressed by your ability to jump into um, post-war German politics, into uh, Australian uh, governance and, uh, well, just everything that's going on. I mean, you've covered quite a bit there. Also thoughts about what the U.S. is and how it's dealing with its current state of political division. I'm assuming that's what you're referring to. And, um, of course, what it's like to live in that intensity of stress of everybody's got to get their job and and get the the bacon and all that. You seem to have a lot of breadth there. We haven't even talked about your experience with French language, for example, or other disciplines you've been in. What is it about you that's, is it about having an immigrant father? Is it, what what is Mm. it that gives you that broadness? And what do you think you don't have compared to maybe other people that don't look so broadly at the world? Yeah, interesting. Well, I dare say I have very little depth. (laughs) I know a tiny thing about, you know, lots and lots of different things. Um, Maybe my type of job where I sort of have to throw myself into a, you know, I've done a lot of kind of freelance and consulting work where you have to 
throw yourself into an industry that you know absolutely nothing about. And, um, you know, maybe there's some fake it till you make it there. Um, but yeah, I think I think to your original point, yes, I've always been interested in that stuff. I always wanted to travel. I was very interested in my dad's sort of provenance and his family. And it seemed very far away back in the 70s. You, know, you can just pop over to England like you can now. Um, I, you know, I used to ask him a lot of questions and I found him interesting. I don't know. I mean, he, it could have been that he had a very romanticized view of England because whenever he seemed to travel there, he, he'd come back on the date that he'd set and he would grumble about, you know, lots of things in modern England that, you know, never ceased to bother him. Um, I, I, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles in the seventies. It was, I grew up in the Hollywood Hills in the seventies. It was a pretty liberal place. There were lots of immigrants. You know, I went to a Catholic school for a while, two Catholic schools. There were lots of kids from Spanish speaking families and Filipino families. They had, you know, way better picnics than we did. Um, the food was good. Um, I, I don't know. I like I like hearing people's origin stories. Um, I find I find hearing about people's family backgrounds fascinating, and I find people's travel stories fascinating. I I was on to travel. I I demanded of my parents that they send me to a French language program when I was 15, and they said okay. Um, so my parents, my mom put me on a plane when I was 15 to Paris. I had a train ticket in my hand, you know, again, everything was printed. I had a printed train ticket with a, with a time and a date on it, I think. So I could get from Paris to the town where my language school was. And I was going to have to take a taxi from the airport to the correct train station. And I was instructed on how to tell the taxi driver, please go the most direct way. Um, and I said that. And, you know, I made it and I learned French and I met some Swedish girls and we spoke a lot of English. Um, and, you know, then I went to Sweden and the, the gal who I visited in Sweden is now a member of parliament. Like I just, and I'm friends with her on Facebook. Like I just, I love that. Um, I find all that stuff fascinating. And I, you know, I, I love, I love hearing your podcast and hearing about what, what your friends do and what they're doing 25 later, years later after their first job or whatever. I just, I, people are interesting. I agree. Do you think that your 14-year-old could do what you did when you were that age, going to Paris and with a ticket? You know, that's really interesting. My kid has zero interest in his second passport. He has also is a dual citizen. Um, he is mortified by my insistence that he use correct grammar, and he accuses me of telling him how to speak American. Meaning he wants to speak Australian and you're making him speak American? I make him speak American by saying things like yes instead of yeah and no instead of nah and spelling words correctly that every English speaker in the world spell, you know. It's, I got the kid who is not me. Yeah. Right? I, uh, my son is probably my ex-husband's child. So, but what he can do, and this actually is probably much more um, <laughs> interesting than what I can do, is... When Armageddon comes, I will be writing the newsletter, but my kid will be driving boats and picking people up out of the water after the tidal wave. Like, I have a kid who, who really lives outside the house. You know, I live at a computer and I write a lot and I talk to people and no one knows what the hell I do. My kid drives boats and hangs out with sharks. You know, he spearfishes and he's underwater a lot. And, you know, yesterday he, he learned how to fix a boat alternator. And, yeah, I'd say his chances of, of surviving the climate holocaust are a whole lot higher than mine. 
but maybe I'll write a haiku about it, you know. I love um, that. I love that you go to Australia, raise a, you have a child in Australia, and the thing he does is like the most dangerous thing to do in the world is be in the water in Australia. Of course, that's my yeah, California totally. perspective, right? But it's dangerous, right? It's so dangerous. And there are stories that he starts to tell me about what happened last week, and I say, stop, tell me that in six months. Um yeah, he's he's a real he's a bit of an adrenaline seeker, and he's he's competent. He's very good at what he does. He's a great boat hand, a decky deckhand. He's great on boats. Um, he's very calm under pressure. And interestingly, which I am not, he can negotiate with adults very ably. You know, he got busted by the water safety guys the other day, and for doing something that was actually not illegal. And he argued his way out of it quite capably and sent them packing you know if that had been me when i was 13 or 14 first of all i would have burst into tears and second of all i would have called my dad to come pick me up and orson told them to get stuffed (laughs) (laughs) do you ever miss the u.s yeah well now that i'm a little older and my brother has kids um i do actually miss people (laughs) i've i think probably for over a year now i've been having participating in what is a weekly Zoom, I don't go on every week, but a weekly Zoom with a bunch of high school girlfriends. That's been amazing. I miss those guys. Like, I don't have to explain myself to any of them. You know, I I haven't seen some of those gals in 30 years or had a very comprehensive conversation with many of them in that time, but we knew each other when we were 13 or 16. I don't need to explain it to them. We just talk about life. So yeah, I miss them and I regret not being there for that type of stuff. Um, I'm, I still miss food. Man, I'd kill for a, a, a taco from Yucas on Hillhurst um, and a lot of other stuff. I miss, you know, it, the States is interesting. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating country with a lot of historical and maybe institutional depth that you don't get in a slightly younger country like, like Australia. I think the U.S. Is, is a young country, but you're right. It's And it is compared to many, many other countries. Yeah. It is incredibly young and and has quite a lot to say for itself for that for that short amount of history. Um, it's got a lot of work to do, too. But, yeah, I mean, I was born and raised in the United States. I have an affinity for the U.S. I, you know, you tell from the way I speak, I've not changed that at all since moving overseas. You know, my best friends are American for the most part or at least my old friends are American and, and that means something. Yeah. I mean, and I'm, I'm the beneficiary of a lot of stuff from, from that time. Why haven't you changed your uh, dialect? It seems strange to me. You've been in Perth for. Yeah. For almost 20 years. Right. So two decades. Um, I think I was too old. I also don't like how Australians speak. <laughs> and I don't think I could pull it off. I could pull off a few English accents. Not many, probably I would do a, you know, a reasonable job of say how my cousin speaks. Um, but I, I can't do it. I got a friend who's from Philadelphia. She's been in, in Australia since she was about 21. And she will say things like there's a town in the West Coast called Carnarvon after the Earl of Carnarvon. So it's got some R's in there. Kelly says Carnarvon. But she's, you know, she also says water because she's from Philadelphia. So she does that. But I can't say Carnarvon. I can't say cans. You know, it's Cairns, got an R in there. <laughs> but I will say nappy and, you know, dummy for a pacifier. And like I said, the kid language and stuff. Um, a pacifier is a dummy? So That's great. A pacifier is a dummy. Yeah. That's nice. 
When I uh, texted you and said, I'd like to interview with their podcast, I think one of the first things you said is made a comment. We were chatting, texting, and you said something to the effect of listening to some of those episodes makes me question what value I have in the world or something, something big for you. (laughs) Is that really happening? Well, yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I, I think I have regrets about my so-called career. Um, I think I expected it to go farther and I think some of the reasons it hasn't or that I haven't made more of it or, or helped more people or done more interesting things is, are, are from kind of personal limitations. Um, and, and I admire people who, you know, now who are roughly 50, who have really done some stuff, um, achieved some things, are making a difference, are working at a very high level. I am not doing that. Like your um, friend that's in parliament. I have a friend. In, I got a couple of friends in parliament here. I got a friend in parliament in Sweden. I mean, you know, of course, there are people who will lambaste the politicians and say, oh, they, you know, they don't deserve to breathe the air they breathe, whatever. But I still think it takes some some guts and some achievements to get there. You know, um, Quincy is doing some amazing stuff in software and education and taught himself at a young age or at a, maybe a not so young age for someone who, you know, had already been doing some different things. So things like that are interesting. You know, Wendy is doing some serious work on diversity and inclusion. Um, you know, so, you know, there are people who have PhDs. Um, I, I don't, I haven't gone that far in, in maybe the career on the career path. And, you know, if I don't stay alert, I could certainly end up on the, on the, the pile of rejects because every, you know, most of us are eminently replaceable, but I think being in the comms world, I'm always in the bunch that's the first to go and the last to get invited back. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I have some regrets there, but probably by the same token, I've had a, so far an interesting life Sounds and like I have it. a lot of friends. Yeah. Um, I still, you know, while I may not do so well on the corporate ladder, which sustains me, I, I have a lot of friends and I don't, I don't have trouble making new connections, which is sort of interesting. Do you ever write for joy for yourself? Very rarely. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I really struggle with that. There is no great American novel in this head at this point. Um, I was listening to someone the other day. It must have been one of these book club radio programs or something. And it was a real writer who, who said it very clearly. You must write from the heart. You know, it's got to come from a, an area of passion, no matter what your process is. Lots of people are very um, procedural about how they write. You know, they sit at the computer at 6 a.m., they use the same pencil or the same keyboard, you know, whatever it is, they follow a pattern. Other writers don't do that. They have a much more creative way of writing or a much more laissez-faire way of writing to write the creative stuff. But all those people who get published get published because they're writing something that's genuine and that will mean something to other to readers. I don't quite have that in me. A few years ago, my godmother died. And my mom must have asked me to write a little obituary or no, I think it was read at her service. And I wrote something about Jerry and it was good. That was a nice piece, but I missed Jerry. Mm-hmm. Jerry was an important person in my life. Not frequently, but you know, at holidays and stuff, you know, my tear, my te- eyes are welling up right now. When I think about her, she was an important person in my life. I was sad that she was gone and she was really interesting. And I looked up to her for many reasons and it was easy for me to write that piece. It flowed off 
out of the pen or off the keyboard and onto the page. Um, so I think, you know, on the odd occasion where I do need to write something personal, it's easy. I just don't, I don't have that idea. You know, there are not characters in my head who are banging on the door to be, to be let out into mm-hmm. a plot. That's not happening in my head. I think it's really um, interesting. You're talking about the procedural aspect of writing. We hear a lot about that from writers. Like I wake up every day. I yeah. make sure I always have, you know, always write a page every single day, whatever the yeah. rule is. But of course, yeah. those are just patterns of making sure you do things. And of course, if you're yeah. good at writing and you do things, you'll publish, right? But the whole, you could be yeah. good at writing and never actually put yourself in front of a, a machine to write or whatever. So I, I think it's funny yeah. that we focus on the procedural. And of course, we do that because how do you teach the other thing? Is it like <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And that's right. And I think there are lots and lots of people who have great ideas about plot and character development. Um who either are undisciplined or who haven't found their discipline, who will benefit from courses or lectures like that or talks like that. um, And who are then encouraged to find their, their, their method. Um, And if those people can stick to it, good stuff will come out. With this perspective of other people in their fifties, my contemporaries like are doing things bigger or have more important or all that stuff. That's the case. You're recognizing it. What are you feeling about yourself with that? Or does that make you like regrets not very useful? So like what Mm. next? What's what's up now? Yeah, good question. Well, (laughs) I I took on a mortgage at the age of 49 and a half. So (laughs) I now am kind of waffling between staring down the barrel of trying to hammer that debt, therefore working until I'm about, you know, 114. And the flip side, which is, you know, could I, could I do some more interesting stuff? Maybe travel. There's <laughs> a few, a few dampening effects of COVID on that at the moment. Um, I, I'm not sure. I've been speaking to somebody about this, and I'm, I'm starting to lay out a plan. But one of, one of the things that this country and the state where I live uh, has is space. And as I said before, it's hard to get to. And so a girlfriend of mine and I took a four-wheel drive course the other day. Um, and we're going to do, so that was the what's called the bush course. And next, next we're going to do the sand course. So the idea is that if we're stuck here in Western Australia, which is really a beautiful place, maybe we should see a bit of it. Um, and now that our premier has announced, he announced yesterday that he's not lifting the borders on February 5th, which would have meant a little bit more easy um, domestic and international travel, then we may really be stuck here for a while. So <laughs> Amanda and I may be taking more four-wheel drive courses. And I might actually have to buy one at some point, um, which my kid would really like me a lot for if I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, to be clear, the bush is uh, forest, right? Outback. Yeah, I would say outback. Outback. But it's forest. Would you call it forest versus sand? I or? think... So what what do they say when people get lost in the desert here? I think they might actually call it bush as well. That's a good question. What is the bush? No, because it, it's a bushfire. Yeah, it's forest. Yeah. A bushfire is a forest fire. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we took this course. And of course, we took her dad's four-wheel drive, which is, you know, the fanciest of the beasts of all the people on the course. Everyone had their own truck. We had the best one, you know, which is worth about a gazillion dollars. But we actually went, we were in the forest and we went up and down this it was probably a 45 degree incline Whoa. and we went up it with no feet on the gas, no feet on the brake and no feet on the clutch. Like this thing could move. So now we know we can do that. 
we don't know what to do when it tips over. We haven't taken that class yet. <laughs> but it was impressive to see what some of these vehicles can actually do and, you know, where you can go with them. Yeah. Were you, did, so you enjoyed it. Were you good at it? Um, yeah. I mean, really, all you need to be able to do is drive a clutch and follow instructions. And because I'm 50 years old, I can still drive a clutch. You know, I dare say there's some youngins out there who don't know about that third pedal. My, my kids can't do it. I, yeah. It's so frustrating to me. And they actually have access to a vehicle that, that has a clutch. They just haven't spent the time. Yeah. We had to, right? We just, we I mean, had it wasn't to. a choice. There was those fancy automatic things, but you couldn't drive yeah, those as a kid. Well, you couldn't afford them, first of all, exactly. and there weren't very many of them. So the existential questions of like, have I done good in my life or all that? Mm. The solution to that is, well, I'm going to go see the, the forest and the, and the beautifulness of Australia. I think probably I need to move my so-called career in the direction of, you know, more work on climate change, more work on impact investing. Things you care about. Uh, things I care about. You know, those things make me get out of bed in the morning. The small team in my division in charge of that, I, I, I get along with these guys. They, they happen to be all men. It's not always the case. They are all um, male coworkers. But, and I like everyone in my division, but these are the good guys, right? These are the guys that who who get what the problem is and who are actually working really hard to fix it. Sounds like you're passionate about that. Yeah. Yeah. I think their their passion and of course their knowledge, because you need a lot of knowledge to be able to 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 make these massive systemic changes. And you need a lot of networks to make these systemic changes. That that is inspiring. So I think, you know, on a career front, that's the way it's it's gotta go. Have you written some good content about that? I'm calling it content because I don't really know what to call it. Yeah, I think it's content. Yeah, we have so my pension fund offers a what's called a sustainable or responsible investment product. So we took it off the hands of an external fund manager a couple of years ago, and then we had to do an annual report on the first year of its operation in house. So I wrote that reasonably well received. I didn't have anything to do with the investments in it, but I had to write that report. Was there wins? Is it working? It is working. There need to be a few fixes to it. But as that thing grows, I think it will do quite well. And the other cool thing about that particular product is that the company that I worked for before I joined asked its customers how they wanted that product to work. And so that those requests were implemented. Um, so that's kind of cool. It's actually like what you would call a member-driven or a customer-driven product. Um, so listening to your customers is, is important. And I think in that instance, we really did that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's cool. So we'll see where that one goes. And then there's lots and lots of other products like that out in the marketplace of varying degrees. And, you know, if, if you can have some influence on, on developing those as, as, you know, the legislation changes and as the sort of reporting frameworks change, then, you know, that can be, that can be interesting. How are you with depression and sleep? Hmm. Yeah, pretty good. I think, you know, I was always one of these kind of neurotic people living in LA. Um, when I had a kid, a lot of that dropped off. I think there was some, there's just no time. Um, so on top of not being as stressed living in this country, I think, you know, you just don't have time to, to worry right. about some of the stuff <laughs> that you do in your twenties. Um, you gotta, you gotta change the nappies. Yeah. Change the nappies. Um, yeah. I think somehow I've come through that phase of my life. I didn't enjoy my twenties. I was probably depressed for a lot of my twenties, maybe lightly or, you know, not so lightly at times. A lot of drinking. You know, yeah. Not overly, you know, probably not above the norm for the age and the and the time. 
I'm also, I, I think I'm, there's a lazy gene in me. I'm a lousy addict. Like, you know, I tried smoking for a while when I was a kid. I didn't last too long. I got a sinus infection. That was way worse. <laughs> I love the idea of lazy addict. That's like, what's that mean? I'm a terrible addict. Like, I just can't be bothered, you know? <laughs> it's too hard. <laughs> it's too hard. And that, that maybe is the flip side of not being super passionate about something that's carried me into a super interesting career. So, you know, I'm one of these eminently rational people um, who, for the most part, is all about moderation, including at times, you know, moderating the moderation. But, you know, I don't know, maybe my dad was a sensible person, you know, turn off the lights when you leave the room, you know, try to plan in advance, you know, basic stuff. So I don't live an extreme life in any way, shape or form. And I think that probably also applies to or maybe even stems from my so-called mental health. I mean, I, I feel pretty, pretty okay now. Do you have an inner voice about things? That's uh, dissecting what you do. Back in the day, I did a an interesting weekend away with a group called. Um, they changed their name. Now they're called More to Life, and the way they uh, talked about that voice is mind talk. And so I call it mind talk. Yes, there's a lot of mind talk going on. A lot of it's probably negative, but I also don't take that stuff too seriously. You know, I mean. Yeah, you could lose a few pounds there, Brenna. You know, okay, great. But I really like ice cream, so shut up. Um, you know, worrying about careers and, you know, stuff that would cause me to tear my hair out at the age of 25, I probably don't worry so much about and actually notice that there's a dish in the sink and either yell at the person who put it there or just put it away myself, you know? like How much do you put it away yourself? I'm learning that it's better to do that than to yell at the person who put it there. It's amazing, isn't that's, it? Tell, that's, that's where I'm in my life right now. That's a major achievement. Totally. I hey, just, these rocks are on the floor. Rah, 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 rah. Oh, if I just pick up the sock, it won't be on the floor anymore. It's amazing. Yeah. Of course, I'm the one that normally leaves stuff on the floor. So, <laughs> <laughs> but it's the it's the the judgment of the kids that I think they find the most challenging is that I think they could do yeah. blah 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 blah, and that's my crap. That's not their life. And getting that is the yeah. thing that's hardest to go. If anytime I'm thinking they could do something different, I'm basically saying they should change, which, you know, if it was yeah. a partner of mine, that'd be crappy. So what am I, totally. what are you doing? Like letting go of that parental aspect, you know, when they're four, you really do need to stop them from running into the street. Like you have yeah. to be there. And there's a lot of those decisions that have to happen, but at some point them taking over is essential. That's hard. Yeah. And the fighting is absurd. I mean, my, as I said before, I do not have a kid who is like me in a lot of ways. Um, he is not interested in attending school he does not like school school does not work for him and you love school and i loved school i was so good at school i think i hit my like life peak at 15 with advanced placement latin like that was my game man i knew i knew how i was going to run this show ap latin and my kid is not like that at all you know he's out there hanging with the sharks and i'm like well your spelling sucks this is absurd we have to fix this you have to change and you know that doesn't go down so well with a 14 year old who could now look you straight in the eye um, so an interesting thing that I've been working on for the past, say, six to nine months is probably, um, divorcing myself from dreams that he will attend university when he's 18, which is the only path I thought was acceptable for any human being. Um, he might do something a little bit different from that. Um, and not only that, but I need to help him do that in the best way possible. Mm. So I'm trying to let my kid be my kid and then also help him be my kid. Yeah. And I don't really know how to do the 
the second part very well, but I'm working on the first part. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. That's How hard. old are your kids again? My eldest is 20. And then yes. I've got um, a 17-year-old daughter and a 16-year-old daughter. Good times. They're all getting too big too quickly or, you know, partially. <laughs> and also, Fast. Yeah. it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also in a space where my optimism for the world has waned over time. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, completely exasperated with the political situation in the United States yeah. right now. It yeah. just kind of feels like, well, we're not even working to get anything better. We're barely standing still. In fact, we're degrading some things that are important. Yeah. And that's hard because now I'm saying, no, you should do these things. So you're have more ability to be in this kind of shitty world. And that's, that's, I think that's hard. Yeah. It'd be interesting to hear what your three kids think about that, because I think mine's not quite at that level of thinking, but your teenagers and 20 year old probably are looking at what's next for them and thinking, really? I mean, they would not have the same outlook you and I had. Right. It, it's a different, and we didn't have the same outlook our parents had. So, you know, we understand that cycle. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in the world politically at the same time that we're grappling with sort of an existential planetary challenge. I've been reading a lot of sci fi for the past couple of years, which, you know, as a younger person, I thought was, you know, silly. I, thought, I think I probably put sci fi in the same category as romance novels. <laughs> but then I read a, a few, and my brother recommended a couple books, and I thought, oh, wow, this stuff is amazing. And these people think about the future. Wait a minute, they're predicting the future before a whole bunch of stuff has been invented. That's interesting. Anyway. There, there is a lot of junk science fiction too that's just yes. like not very useful. Just like there's probably junk romance and there's actually better exactly. romance, whatever. But yeah. I do agree that that's, that's interesting. I was kind of curious about what you're reading. So do you read a lot? Are you a fast reader? I'm trying to read more. So I think for many years, I kind of got burnt, you know, being a literature major, I sort of got burnt out on reading and writing about it. You know, I'm in a book club, which is mostly mums drinking wine and gossiping. But we do we make each other read, which is fantastic. So I'm reading more. Are you wait? Are you doing those physical? Are you doing physical like in person? Yes, we can. So okay, in all your benefit. spare time, <laughs> like the state of Western Australia has had virtually no COVID for two years because of the lockdown. down. Because of this lockdown thing, so well. We're, so in our daily life, we don't wear masks and we're not restricted from doing stuff for the vast bulk of the past 22 months. So yes, for most of our book clubs, when we get our act together, which is probably every other month, max, you know, we meet in person. Okay, that's pretty amazing. Which is amazing. Yeah, no, I mean, people people complain, whinge, that's an Australianism or a Britishism. People whinge about our lack of freedoms to come and go. But the life we've led over the past 22 months has been... Uh, 99% normal. Yeah. Wow. It's almost the same as it was before. Okay, so, in any case, and, you're and, books clubs, reading. Yeah. yeah. So book club makes me read books, but I read other books on the side um, or in addition to book club books. And, you know, a lot of them are science fiction, uh, some of which are possibly on the trashy side. But, you know, a lot of them cover concepts that I was not familiar with as an earlier reader. So, you know, life in space and hurdles you have to cross to get to certain levels of spatial exploration and colonization and, you know, development and stuff. So I find those super, super interesting. And then communications. Have you read the classics on those, like Red Mars, Blue, Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars series? Um, have you read that? 
No, I don't think I've read that one. Oh, you I've should read, read that. Oh, yeah, I've read a little bit of the older stuff, like some Heinlein, and you know, I'm I'm waiting for my my copy of Dune, my second. You know, I want to read Dune again before I see the movie again. Uh, Heinlein, movie. I have a I have a love hate with Heinlein because yeah, his character like he's definitely got some family problem issues, <laughs> a lot of like <laughs> incestual kind of environment stuff, like. <laughs> Moon is a harsh mistress is you like look at the society structure like yeah that's written by a guy that doesn't know how to do relationships well bit creepy yeah totally well i love asimov but like he can't write dialogue like i sit there i'm like nobody talks like this not even the robots talk like that you know but i think what am i looking at my shelf so i i thought the the series by um dan simmons he's written a bunch of books blew my mind Mostly because of, well, he introduces a lot of concept, and I think he wrote them in the 80s. But So he wrote them before the internet, but he, he writes about basically what is what happens well after the internet, which is like data is just in the air, right? Like we live in this, it's kind of a mix of like a biological soup of air and data, and like it's everywhere, right? So people get to read, and there's all sorts of other weird social problems, and then there's like massive intergalactic space travel and time travel and crazy stuff, right? But his plots are are kind of good and there's some shoot 'em ups and then he does some crazy stuff with the catholic church i'm like wow this guy is all over the shop i just find him <laughs> fascinating oh um, it's, he's he's written the hyperion stuff yeah he's sure. hyperion yeah, and Dimian. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and some the, other stuff the re- the mars trilogy i was talking to uh, talking about is kim stanley robinson um okay. and it's just one of those he's a I personally really do enjoy science fiction that is uh scientifically accurate as much as possible yes. i just i love yes, being in that course. space um, not that there's anything wrong with complete fantasy. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think some of the stuff definitely veers into fantasy. Um, but the, yeah, like I think it's science fiction is important. In fact, the chief scientist of Australia, the one, maybe the one, the predecessor to the current one said on the radio, not too long ago, science fiction should be required reading because it's, you know, these are futurists. These people yeah. are thinking about really hard problems. They're thinking about, you know, existential problems like the death of our planet um and so on and like what we're going to do about that and how we're going to live on other planets and we need to know this stuff and they're also you know picking up scientific concepts that we might not necessarily be introduced to in physics or chemistry class or whatever and so yeah i I tend to agree with that that'd be a great idea in picking up science fiction and starting to read it more recently what did you stop doing to do to pick up that time like would you trade on your time uh probably crap tv and that's probably about it. That's Maybe. good. That's a good trade. Yeah, I think crap TV. <laughs> yeah. That's what's happening to me this month of doing this podcast. I'm watching a lot less yeah. television. It's like, okay, that's okay. Now, don't get me wrong. Yeah, I, I work mean, for Netflix. Everybody should watch TV. <laughs> and I, I'm actually watching a Netflix series right now that I'm really, really enjoying. And I sort of trade off between Netflix, uh, between series and, and books. I'm watching a South Korean show called Stranger. Hmm. It's a cop crime drama. And it's, it's good. I really like it. You don't speak Korean, right? No, I do not speak Korean. But there, there are a couple words that you hear over and over and over and over and over again. And so I looked one up the other day. I'm like, that's it. I got the word. And it was what I thought it was, which is a, you have to add it as a polite form of address. Korean culture has a lot of um, age. Uh, like you have to speak differently to different age groups. Yeah, there's age and then seniority. So, and then also I think stratum and society. So this particular series is about kind of a war between the cops and the state prosecutors. So like, you know, 
the lawyers. Yeah, interesting. And so the cops bow to the lawyers because the lawyers are university educated. Right, right, of course. And then there are lots of strata within those. And then every now and then there'll be a word in English that's used and you think, oh, that's kind of weird. Why do they keep using that? And clearly it's a cultural reference. Like it's something that's going on within Korean culture that the, the interpreters or the translators are approximating in English. This is we on that. And I find that fascinating. And in this particular show, which is also fascinating, our hero is a prosecutor and he suffered as a child from insane headaches and hearing problems and rage and stuff. And so <laughs> effectively in the end, he was partially lobotomized oh, um, wow. to, to solve these problems. And which of course created other problems. One of which was that he's lost a lot of his emotional capacity mm. and his intelligence has shot through the roof. He's extremely effective at what he does, but the actor who plays him can use almost no emotion when he's, when he's playing this character and he's extremely subtle in his facial um, movements and expressions. And we love him. Like you develop a relationship with this guy who is what you might call extremely autistic, severely autistic. And he even asks questions. I'm not sure what you mean by how would I know he's worried? And his colleague who's talking to him says, what do you mean? How would you know when someone's worried? And he's really, you can see him studying his colleague's face. I'm not sure how I would know he's worried. It's fascinating. And then he gets a call from his fellow cop and there's a break in the case and he drops his sandwich and he runs. He's because they're looking for a fellow prosecutor who's been kidnapped. He, you can see the emotion in his actions. You just can't see it on his face. That's fantastic. Okay. It's a That's really called interesting stranger. show. Called stranger. stranger. It's on Netflix and it's, we have a few stranger things. I'll have to find it, but it's Korean. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's not stranger things. No, it's a, yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of gray and like the set, you know, the, the views you get of Seoul and the other Korean cities are not that interesting. Like it's really gray, but yeah. it's, it's, I find it fascinating. One of the things that's happening at Netflix is amazing is that we're making locally centralized content wherever yeah. it's being created. And then it goes all over the globe. We have really interesting, when you look at the stats, there's really interesting pockets of like this show that's coming out of, you know, let's say South Korea, um, and it's like really popular in Argentina. And you're like, why? Yeah. Why is it yeah. happening? We don't really why? know. It just culturally, it's different. Anyway, it's fascinating. I did a show uh, for the We Are Netflix podcast a couple of seasons ago with two um, content creators, Gina Kim and oh, the other woman is also Kim, Beyond Kim. They are like yeah. marketing content manager and content manager, like the, the yep. per- person in front of content and the person in charge of marketing. And we talked a bit about the cultural differences of Korea. And that's where I learned that thing about it's very like you just like gender is in some countries, you've got to do the same thing for ageism in there. And they're trying to kill it in the office and change that. Ah, It's it's a cool podcast episode if you're interested in in Korea, South Korea. Oh, that would be great. I'd love to. I'd love to hear that. It's called Netflix Korea and the We Are Netflix podcast if you want. Um, So do you get involved in any of that or you're doing backend stuff i don't actually know what you do at netflix oh i'm a ui engineer so i build okay. i build tools so for a long time i worked on the ios app um so if you had yep. netflix on an ipad and iphone i, I wrote yep. that code and then about gotcha. f- three years ago four years ago i switched to the studio side of things and i've been building tools yeah. for the production of content and then about two years ago i started focusing or a year and a half ago i started focusing on animation only so now i'm making tools oh, wow. for animation and you know speaking of diving into different disciplines to make UI, you have to understand the users. And so I've been doing studying yeah. up on animation. That's what I've been learning for the last um, year, which has been a blast. We did like an internal course, a lot of reading of books. So that's been a bit of my studying space. 
And oh, that's I'm in great. love. I'm in love with animation right now. Totally in love with it. Animation is amazing. I grew up watching Warner Brothers cartoons, mm-hmm. and so far, not a whole lot trumps those for me for a number of reasons. I mean, one of which, of course, the voice characterizations were amazing. And I've since watched a lot of cartoons where the voice characterizations are are the, the show, and the animation is sort of secondary. But yeah, animation's amazing. I mean, animation conveys so much and can do so many things that live production can't. Um, it's a it's a great art art yeah, form. Yeah, it's a really interesting art form. I really like it. We just we have a show called Arc, um, Arcane on yes. Netflix. It's probably been promoted to you because it's a big one. Um, it's pretty violent, but yep. it is impressive what they're doing. The style of it's pretty impressive piece, and it's good. I'll check it out. Arcane. Arcane. I don't know if that's the best animation piece to, to watch, but I mean, you, I'm assuming you you have a kid. You have a kid, so you've watched like all the Pixar movies and stuff. I've watched some of the Pixar movies. Strangely, my child was not super into kid movies. We really enjoyed the Last Airbender series. Yes. Not we watched the film. that, and those are not the <laughs> film. God no. We watched those probably, we've probably watched it five or six times yeah. all the way through. Yeah. Great voice characterizations, great stories and stuff. Um, my kids are were addicted to those series and both my yeah. oldest and my youngest did Halloween costume stuff. My uh, son completely shaved fabulous. his head to be Aang. We did the blue <gasps> thing and I Ready made him a staff that had wings that he could open up. So Awesome. Yeah. In fact, our dog is named Zuko after Prince Zuko. Oh, <laughs> oh that's great. And you can see on my wonderful t-shirt i'm oh, wearing str- oh, which is bed. probably 20 years old it's yeah from home star runner oh my gosh so <laughs> you know it's a great series that is such a great series speaking about animation that thing home star runner that whole series and of course strong bed who you have whose yeah. eye feels the star of it yeah what yeah, an yeah, amazing sure. what an amazing production of like that's pre-youtube right so if you want to watch yeah. video type content that's what was there um that's right fascinating that it and it's also because of the interactivity it's not a game they're right. interactive content really cutting edge stuff i wonder what they're doing now at netflix i did work for like a year and a half two years something like that in interactive content so i helped build up the branching ah. narrative stuff have you ever watched any of the branching narrative titles like bandersnatch no. on netflix so these are like um we don't use the term choose your own adventure because it's trademarked but ah, that's what it is yeah. for film oh really yeah and so it's a it's a, it's a, the Bandersnatch one is Black Mirror. Have you ever watched Black Mirror? Mm-mm. Black Mirror is like a dystopian, what, what technology could do just slightly different than it is now and be dystopian. Some of it's already yep, kind yep, of true. Yep. Um, oh, wait, is that a, a British show? Yeah. That's, First season was. I have seen some of that, I BBC, think. yeah. Yep, anyway, yep, yep. we did this one. The Bandersnatch story is about a person making an interactive narrative fiction and it is using the interactive narrative fiction. So it's kind of self-referential. It's a really interesting piece. Um, that is very cool. Yeah, I'd like to say I haven't watched all the shows because I read constantly, great. and that's a lie. <laughs> I don't think it's true. Before you got into sci-fi, what were you reading? Because I've always thought of you as a reader. Yeah, I mean, I read almost exclusively fiction, and then I still, as you know, after I don't know three decades, I do subscribe to the New Yorker, so I get the New Yorker sent to my mailbox. Which, do you read it? You know, I do. I read. I don't read it on time. I usually have about six months piled up on, you know, in the bathroom or something. Um, but I do read the New Yorker a lot. I, you know, most of my news, I guess I would get on the internet. I do like the New Yorker. And then I tend to read fiction almost exclusively, which, you know, is a choice. It's escapist. And I, I try to aim, you know, at least half the time for something that's vaguely literary. Um, my 
sure I don't even achieve that. But <laughs> Do you ever read in other languages? Yeah, on the odd occasion, I'll read some stuff in German. My French is not good enough to do that anymore. I mean, I can, I can read the paper in French, but I probably need a dictionary. And of course, I don't know what current events there are. I have a girlfriend who's Swiss, and she will um, palm her copies of the... Um, you know, the, the Zurich paper, the Sunday magazine off to me. And they have some really interesting pieces. They use, they do kind of long format and sometimes they're really beautifully um, photographed or, um, you know, the layouts are amazing. So every now and then I'll, I'll get some of her copies of that, but mostly no, I haven't read it in English. I thought, I'm a friend of mine who's kind of a, has a few languages as well that I do some mm. recording for on geek speak with. His name's Warren. He regularly to keep current on news will read papers outside of the U S talking about the U S um, yeah, and of yeah. course he'll do yeah, that in French or whatever yeah. language he, he uses. I think that's an, I, I wonder, I'm always wondering why, if that's part of the reason why America is so um, isolated to its own self and doesn't think about the rest of the world is it just doesn't understand. A lot of people don't speak multiple languages, unlike Europe. Yeah. And that, that's certainly the case. I think it's probably even more the case in Australia. There is, in Australia, I'm always scandalized by the lack of language instruction there is in schools compared to America. So that tells you something. Um, look, this is an island nation. We have no land border with anywhere. Right. So it's Why even kind of more people? extreme. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but by the same token, Australians do travel a lot, especially when they're young and a lot of them settle overseas and stuff. But yeah, I think that is a great way to learn about your own backyard is to read what other people think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Brenna, thanks for doing this to me. I, I totally trick you into doing this like tonight just by <laughs> saying like, hey, I'm going to eat dinner in the afternoon. Let's talk. So thanks I thought for being we were game. just going to decide on what we we're going to kind of float some ideas. It's been a real joy. It's really a pleasure to talk to you. I yeah. I feel. I mean, talk about regret or like could things have been different and all that. I feel like why didn't we stay more connected? Like I've always had a fondness for you, but we haven't talked in twenty years or so. Look, distance is a thing, and time yes. zones are a thing. They they really are a barrier, mm. and there are um, some people who are just good at it and other, you know some people are good at email some people are good at phone calls some people are good at texting i i do think that, you know smartphones really help um but distance is a bit of a barrier so you know it, that, it, that's a good excuse and also i don't i haven't been in the states in a long time i haven't been to the mainland in a long time how long has it been so um i think it'll be i think it's five four four years four years yeah uh, we met in hawaii in october uh, 2019, just before COVID. Yeah, yeah. People. I had a good year of travel in 2019, which is oh, lucky. Like to hear about that. <laughs> just, just traveled more than any other year of my life, which is very apropos of then not moving anywhere for two years. Yeah, <laughs> or maybe more. We don't know. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you so much. Good luck with your 14-year-old adventure son. I hope that he stays thank safe you. in the water. Yeah. Oh yeah, and best of luck with teenagers launching, perhaps flying the coop or. Sticking to the perch, we'll see. As long as they're happy and fulfilled. Yeah. And that's right. I'm working on it myself. So awesome. Right. Have a great day. Thank you, my friend. Yes, I will. Mm-hmm. Bye, Brian. Have a good evening. I turned off the recording and Brenna and I talked for another two hours. And a lot of that was, you know, even more personal or more touching or not for presentational purposes in any way. 
I mean, you know, this sounds like two people talking, but of course we're both aware we're recording. And so we are doing the social etiquette of speaking in a way that works for a broad group of people. But what I really took away from all that as I was talking with her and thinking, oh, I wish I had that on tape. And even saying a couple of times when she had great quotes, I wish I had that on tape. One of the things she said was, I'm a snob by training, (laughs) which is just lovely. (laughs) Anyway, that was great. I want to make a recommendation. Call someone up. It's been a long time. You haven't heard from them. You haven't talked to them. Make some time to call them. It's, It's really lovely. It's really rewarding. Thank you for listening. I'm Lyle Troxell. This is Lunch with Lyle. You can reach me at lyle at troxel.com and you can learn about all the podcasts I do and things like that at troxel.com. And of course, you can reach me on any of the social networks. Thank you so much for listening.